Uh, to the listeners, I bought, uh, well, just standard uh, off-the-shelf white glue. I think it's even Elmer's white glue. And also uh, went to the local Walmart and got their 70% alcohol uh, solution and mixed, well, put the white glue, well, put the rocks down first, followed by drizzlings of white glue and then a spray bottle uh, applying the alcohol solution. The only feedback I can give to that is that you probably should find a relatively weak spray bottle. Even though the spray bottle was relatively small, it still provided enough of a spray to knock some of the rocks in various directions. But uh, I found it was relatively forgiving. The packing was an interesting process as well in terms of just the amount of time and moving various grades of brushes over uh, over the rails and keeping things uh, in relative order. But, yeah, it was quite I have a quick tip for you, Tom, not to interrupt. Certainly. Um, whenever I'm doing ballasting, and this is the way that I've read it in Dave Ferry scenery books and such, I always soak with um, straight 70% isopropyl alcohol first. Mm-hmm. Then I drizzle on 50-50 um, glue and water with a little bit of dishwashing detergent or photo flow or whatever you want in it. Mm-hmm. And then leave it and then go back and fish all, fix all the washouts later. Mm. For whatever reason... Glue and water first, then alcohol doesn't seem to work so well. Because the alcohol will penetrate right down through the roadbed, which is what you want, in my experience anyway. But carry on. So let's get the process clear again. You obviously put the ballast down first, then you apply the alcohol. You get the ballast exactly the way that you want it, Mm -hmm. using a little foam brush. Mm -hmm. And then I have a little a glue bottle top that I put straight vegetable alcohol in and soak it. Then I come back a couple of minutes later with a, with a little pipette. I just drop it on. I don't try and use a spray bottle because that just makes a mess. Mm-hmm. And you could use an eyedropper or whatever. And then I put it down every two ties or so, a drop down the middle of the tracks and then at the same distance on either outside of the rails. And you keep doing that until you start to see white coming out at the bottom of the roadbed. And then just leave it alone for 24 hours. Right. Yeah. I, it, that, here's, here's the interesting part that I found with regards to this process, and it could be to do with doing this in New England versus doing this in Las Vegas. The conditions here, even with air conditioning, are still relatively hot and also extremely dry. And the alcohol application part, uh, although it was through a bottle, once it collected and pulled, the vaporous component of it was really overwhelmingly strong. I think if I applied the alcohol solution first, it would have been very difficult to... uh, The amount of vapour that I was getting off was, was considerable from the pooling alcohol. So my concern with regards to that method is if you're in a cooler environment and probably considerably better ventilated, then I think that would have worked. But I think pooling the alcohol solution first, I mean, as it was, I tried to minimize the use of alcohol as much as possible because it was it was almost instantly vaporous. Uh, but I think the conditions here may limit that technique because I certainly wouldn't want to be applying considerable quantities of the alcohol over long periods of track because it was 
probably the most toxic part of the process in terms of the fact that it almost instantly vaporized. Yeah, yeah, I do about two feet or so, two and a half feet, no more than three feet at a time, mm. and I turn a fan on. But also, I'm in a basement, and then in the next room is my mother's piano studio. So we dehumidify in the summer and humidify in the winter. So it's yeah, pretty so you already probably climate. have you already probably have the right air conditions. Whereas what happened here, even with um, and let me just think in terms of feet, how many feet I've done? Maybe seven feet, I guess. Um, the the air is all recirculated here. I should have I should have done it outside, but even there, I don't think the alcohol would have even I don't, it would have it would have evaporated almost instantly. Um, so my, my sense was to minimise the alcohol, use the alcohol purely at the contact points rather than soak the alcohol, uh, and that was just because of the speed of evaporation. Um, Point of fact, if it takes about 24 hours for the stuff to dry where you are, it was pretty well hard dry after about an hour here. I don't know if it takes 24 hours. I just give it 24 hours just as a matter of, yeah. Yeah. So I think what we're probably saying to the listening audience is... Yeah, that's a bit much about alcohol. At least we didn't go into chemical volatility tables or anything god-awful like that. (laughs) Yeah. Well, I I used to work in an alcohol environment, I mean, an engineering bath environment with alcohol. But yeah, one of my first jobs when I was about 16, 17 was working with huge alcohol baths uh, in a research school, the physics research school. So I'm very aware of the volatility of alcohol and try to minimize <laughs> the vaporous quantities of it. So yes, I guess if you if you are in a colder, cooler environment, probably follow Ben's method. And if you're in a hotter, drier environment, um, I guess just minimize the amount of alcohol that you have yeah. to apply because you're going to be breathing it pretty quickly. Do whatever uh, works and it's fun. Yes, yes. Keep it simple. <laughs> Well, I don't know. The, 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 it's not a pleasant alcohol. I mean, it really is just uh, quite a, a toxic. Um, it's quite toxic uh, in terms of both inhalation and also the, the smell lingered throughout the house. I and mean, we have recirculated here and various other techniques here. Uh, uh, Try yeah. um, running sterno model steam engines inside or flow cool paint attacking foam. Neither of those are pleasant either. <laughs> yes. So, Chris, as a tiebreaker, what technique have you used in the past for ballasting? Uh, typically, the application of uh, a water with dish soap uh, dripped on with either a pipette or a, an eyedropper. Uh, then let that uh, sit for a minute, get my 50-50 white glue and water ready. Uh, it's mixed in a spare glue bottle, and I just uh, slowly drip that onto the, onto the ballast as I go, I don't use a spray bottle anymore because uh, for for ballasting anyway, because I found it would just distort everything that I did, all Certainly. the patient work. I stand corrected. I'm holding up my hands. There are many ways to skin a cat. Do <laughs> you don't use any alcohol? Um, well, sometimes I do. Sometimes I don't. Um, lately, I haven't been using it because I found that. Uh, uh, one of the ways to remove white glue applied um, track is to actually soak it in alcohol. So the alcohol does have a, a softening effect on the glue itself. I Very just, good. Just something I'm I'm experimenting with as I go along. It's not one of these things that's hard and fast. 
everyone has a, a preferred method. And, uh, like Ben says, there's many ways to skin a cat and, and not all of them are, are fun for the cat. Yeah. Um, my cat is downstairs. I didn't know about yours, Tom. <laughs> yeah, he's lying close by as he always does when I record this show. He's my barometer for the show going too long, but he's, he's <laughs> sleeping as, as normal. So we can continue on. So that's, that's been my, um, couple of weeks. In, I know the feeling well. <laughs> In, in model, oh, he's waking, he's waking. Okay. Um, anyway, so that's been my two weeks in, in model rail riding. Chris, um, can you do it chronologically in terms of the stuff that you've been doing over the past couple of weeks? I don't know if I can follow chronologically. Uh, there's been an awful lot going on in the last two weeks uh, from a personal and professional standpoint. Uh, just before the last show, I did actually receive my new uh speedometer from Bacris, the DCC version that plugs into your PC and gives you a readout. And uh, I had played with it for well, about a half an hour, an hour at that time, but uh, hadn't had a good chance to, uh, to dig into it. I've received uh, another magazine from, from England, uh, the narrow gauge and industrial short line, uh, sorry, industrial modeling review which is, again, one of my favorite uh, magazines, and I've been digging through that. I had a wonderful chat with a friend of mine out in the west, uh, the west of Canada who's talking about reducing his uh, inventory of model trains in order to uh, concentrate his focus and get more done. And uh, he'd mentioned that uh, one of the local fellows out there had, had passed away leaving uh, an immense basement full of stuff for his widow to deal with. And uh, it's taken the better part of a year and a quarter and his, his modeling buddies have so far been unable to, to clear the basement of all his stuff. Uh, so there's a, there's definite benefit in, in reducing your, uh, your overhead there. Mm. Um, I did a little bit of experimentation in terms of the, the, layout of the garden railway or the alignment of the garden track. Um, my work in the garden has been a bit, uh, a bit, uh, cramped lately because I, uh, I broke the steering wheel on the tractor and, uh, I had suffered a small injury from another unrelated event. So I've been, uh, laying off the shoveling and digging for, for a little while. And you posted some photos of your garden on the mailing list. I hadn't realized the, the extent, the, the size and potential uh, of the environment that you have to work with with regards to uh, a garden railway. I, I, guess, I guess I'd never ask you about dimensions specifically in terms of the, the environment that you could work with, but there seem to be a lot of open spaces. The, the area behind the house uh, to the back fence and side to side is probably uh, 75 by... 240 in terms of feet so i've got a, a lot of space but i i can't i can't just uh consume all of that without uh without regard for for anyone else or anything else using the space and uh, frankly i wouldn't want to have an entire backyard full of uh full of garden rail because the maintenance uh could be uh, well far more than i'd want to after the first year or so it could be worse and of course, this is this exercise is not about taking an indoor garden layout or an indoor layout and putting it in the garden. I'm not going to have 20 sidings and buildings, and I'm not going to build huge 
mounds of earth representing uh, uh, mountains. That's not the purpose of it. So it's going to be a lot more sort of a display of, of a display area for model engineering endeavors in, <laughs> in the larger scales. It's not, it's not a, it's not going to be an operating session sort of thing. People will come out, run trains. There'll be a social, uh, social aspect to it, uh, possibly some refreshments and, and canapes and what sort of thing going on. But uh, In terms of the longer dimension, though, do you think you'll have at least a straight section that's about 200 feet long? Uh, well, I had ordered the track and, uh, and ties from, uh, from the States, from Sunset Valley in the States. And I had a vision in my head of going sort of around the base of the willow tree towards the back of the property and around the base of the, what I believe is an ash tree. And, uh, so I ordered about 120 feet of, uh, of track and, uh, subsequent to our discussion in the last show or the show before where we talked about planning everything to death and just getting up and doing something, I, uh, hooked together about 120 feet of garden hose and went out to lay it around in the, in the, in the grass and sort of get a sense of uh, sweeping curves and space and realized that I had nowhere near enough track to do anything that I had in my mind. I had woefully underestimated the, the distances involved. Yeah, uh, that happens. Chris, well, is there a um, diagram or sketch or anything of your backyard and your ideas, or are you intentionally not making such a thing for fear of overplanning? Well, I, I had started some, and then I discarded them um, in, a, in a fit of trying to conform to the, the more organic approach uh, <laughs> rather than okay. business plan and plan. So the answer so, is no by choice. Okay. I was just a little bit confused trying to follow along. The, the garden hose ended up being the, the solution uh, for, for planning. Uh, however, um, being... I think that for just for the basic loop, if I wanted to go under the base of both trees and make a sort of a lazy oval, I'm probably one and a half, I need one and a half times more rail and ties than I already have just to do that. And I'll still need more track on top of that to do a couple of sidings for steaming up and one or two for passing. So, um, this I'm, is why you draw it up in CAD and get a sum total level track <laughs> Nope, not doing that. Not doing that. Uh, it's all going to be uh, a lot more seat the pants here. And uh, so I, uh, I was a little bit dejected in, in coming to the realization that I was, uh, was off on the wrong foot. So I, I came in and sat down, had a cup of tea and thought about it and explained the situation to, uh, to my better half. And she said, well, you're, you're just going to have to go and buy more track, aren't you? <laughs> so, yes, um, an unexpected answer, I must admit. But uh, so now I have to, to go and think on it again. However, we're now approaching the, the fall and I want to get the, the rest of the landscaping done and I want to get some work done in the house to, to improve it for this winter. So I'm going to. I'm not going to be going ahead to, to start digging post holes and putting the garden railway in because it's, it's too late in the season now. Um, so what I'll do is in the interim, I'll order the rest of the track and uh, come the springtime next year, I'll have a fresh start and probably be farther along than I am uh, 
I'll, I'll be off on a better foot uh, start, come the start of the next season. Certainly. But, and just uh, to confirm the, the math, you're talking about probably having 250 to 300 feet of track. Or even yes. more than that. Some, somewhere in that range, provided I haven't woefully underestimated yet again. Right. And in terms of just the way that you're seeing it currently without getting to uh, to CAD design or these kind of things, will there be two or three stops along a long piece, or how do you see it in terms of what it'll actually look like? Uh, if I look at the the sort of a profile of an egg, um, one one narrow, reasonably tight radius end, and a much broader curve around the base of the willow tree, uh, the narrow end is probably going to be on the order of 10-foot radius, if I can manage it, maybe 8 at a minimum. Mm. Uh, that's to allow the larger locomotives like the uh, like the Garrett uh, articulated to to go around. Uh, they demand a pretty pretty broad curve. So yes, uh, yes but I'll need a, a little tight. I guess what what's the yeah? I guess what's the is it the uh, one to twenty two scale? Is that what you're? What scale are you working with? Oh, well, I, I hadn't really thought as far as scale. I mean, the locomotive and cars that I'm going to be working with are going to be built to a scale of 1 to 19, okay. which is uh, 16 millimeters to the foot. So okay. by using a traditional O-gauge track, which is 32 millimeters, then I'm representing a two-foot gauge prototype. Uh, however, on that kind of track, you will see anything from... Uh, a scale of obviously 1 to 43 up to, uh, or 1 to 48 actually, because uh, o, o scale in North America is quarter inch, uh, standard gauge all the way up to 1 to 15, I think, is the yeah. biggest one that runs on it. And that would represent about a 15-inch yeah. gauge prototype, uh, like um, the uh, Romney hyphen Dimchurch, the things that uh, Sir Arthur Haywood was involved with. Uh, but you know, it's, uh, it's going to be fun. I'll need a couple of passing sightings just so that if I want to have more than one train running at the same time, there's going to be, oh, maybe half a dozen people here for, uh, a run, a steam up as, as we call it. So and you'd put them want... on either, either side of the egg, so to speak, or would you put them on the same side of one of the, so the longer faces of the egg? I'd probably put them. I'd probably put them on the long, the longish sides of the ellipse mm-hmm. um, or oval. So it de- depends. As again, I, d- I don't want to plan too far ahead here. I'll Sorry. have to go where the mood takes me at the time, right? Very good. Um, Very good. Be a little cavalier about this one. Okay. Because uh, now. Just the dimensions you're describing seem to indicate that you'll need more track than you've even estimated. Well, I'll I'll get I've got more garden hose, so I'll go out and and <laughs> couple it all together and and see what I what what appeals to me. Very good. And uh, then start uh, picking up the landscape timbers or um, whatever posts are are pressure treated or suitably. Uh, Raw, anti-rot treated, and then I can try something, try some uh, some work. 
but uh, in support of the the garden efforts i actually received finally my my laser cut uh, components from the 16 millimeter scale association for an 040 and they're cut from uh, laser cut from it's one eighth inch mild steel. Gosh! And uh, it's the side frames, the buffing plates, uh, the foot plate for the cab, main rods, connecting rods, uh, crosshead guides, uh, reversing lever, uh, drop links, a number of other things, another number of parts that would be a real pain to have to profile mill individually or file up from the from blanks. Uh, and then I got uh, some uh, wheel blanks out of mile steel. They're probably on the order of an inch and a half in diameter. And then the counterweights for the axles. They're all they're all present and accounted for. And that's based on a design from a book by uh, by Brian Wilson that's called Steam Trains in Your Garden. And it's a large hardcover book, uh, beautifully produced. And what it is, the entire book is dedicated towards the construction of an 040 locomotive. Uh, and it's all done with the most beautiful CAD drawings I've ever seen. And uh, you can do the entire thing from the, from the book. Uh, or you can purchase, as, as I've done, uh, a number of components that are, let's say, excuse removers. Uh, things that uh, would uh, allow me to delay or otherwise uh, stop production because it's such a pain to have to profile mill duplicate parts uh, in thin stock. So I had those done in the uh, laser cut from uh, from the steel plate. Myself and probably I think 40 other people did the did the group buy on this. It was a uh, Almost a, almost a half a ton of metal, I think, altogether Gosh. was delivered. So, and would you would you thin it or would you steel weld it? How how would you actually put it together? Oh, nuts and bolts. Nuts and bolts. Nuts and bolts. Uh, there'll be some silver soldering on the non-ferrous components, uh, brass brass work and and copper work for the boiler. Uh, there'll be. I don't think there'll be any adhesives used. There's no need for it. But uh, yeah, I'll have to make. Uh, I'll have to turn some stretchers to go between the frames, and those are attached with uh, with uh, stainless steel or or other suitable bolts. And uh, there'll be pins and cotters and and all sorts of other really good mechanical solutions to uh, to put all the parts together. So it's probably a fascinating project. <laughs> uh, it's it's uh, well, I I've been trying to put together a machine shop at home for some time, and I had some very small pieces of equipment. Ah uh, uh, yes, the way of moving story. <laughs> yeah, and uh, actually this week, uh, this past weekend, I finally got the last big piece that I've been looking for, and. Uh, that took the better part of well two evenings and a complete day to get that and its bench work and everything else set up in the shop. Still needs more to do before I can use it, but uh, 
Uh, theoretically, with that, I could build a traction engine of a size suitable to ride on, but I'm I'm not that ambitious. Um, um, if 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 we had all the time in the world, <laughs> I would be hopping well, on a bus to come live in your machine shop. <laughs> well, I I don't have all the time in the world, so I'm I'm a bit distressed at how I how I split my attention amongst a half a dozen different. Uh, different major projects with the home and the landscaping and the model trains and the model engineering. Yep. Uh, speaking but, of that, um, not to interrupt, sorry. Um, I have dinner and a job interview awaiting. So nice talking with you. Good to with you, Ben. Take care. Right. Oh. Um, so uh, what was I saying? Oh, yes, the machine shop. Um, what I'm trying to do is eventually get to a point where the machine tools and the steam trains and the electric trains all come together at a nice convergence and I can use use the tools to make new hobby items for myself, components that I couldn't otherwise purchase or, uh, you know, would, wouldn't be... Uh, cost-effective to to have someone else uh, make for me uh, and possibly if if things turn out the right way I could uh, uh, create masters forecastings or you know possibly if I if I turn one one smokestack or a dome for a steam engine I could once it's set up I could probably turn three or four just as easily and if someone else wanted one then we could swap parts or Perhaps some folding money could change hands. I don't know. Uh, mm. Really, it's all supposed to be about a uh, uh, a furthering of the manual skills. You know, we, we talked about this disposable society and people, something breaks and people throw it out. They don't know how it works. They don't know how to fix it. And that's always really um, uh, bothered me uh, that, that I wasn't at that stage. And I've done some some technical training and whatnot in the evenings and weekends over the past oh, five years and finally completed them last, last month, all everything's sorted. So, uh, hopefully I'll go together and get everything comes together and, and I start making things, but <laughs> it's been a long road. Certainly in terms of your friend who has started playing track on his garden layout, do you get a sense of whether you're maybe a couple of seasons away of completing laying the track, or do you get a sense that this is maybe a five or six year process? Um, for the actual the actual track laying, once uh, once the materials are on hand, is going to go fairly quickly. Uh, it, you, you know, you're not building a complete set of benchwork. You're only building sufficient to support the track essentially immediately under the alignment. You're not building out, you know, two or three feet on either side of it to support structures and, and scenery. Uh, so, and it, it's more carpentry work than anything else. It's not, uh, and rough carpentry to that, uh, speaking of that, it's not fine finished carpentry. It doesn't require uh, cuts more accurate than probably a quarter of an inch, uh, plus or minus. So, um Really, the, the, the track is there for, for the purposes of providing you a way to display 
what you've been working on while the snow has been flying. So your your rolling stock, your engines, and uh, and other engineering work that you've been undertaking, uh, and also uh, a focal point for the social aspect of the uh, of the live steam community, which is which is as a, we've talked about this before. The live steam is different than other garden, like electric garden rail, railways, and that's different from indoor garden railways. So there's a, a different philosophy, a different focus in each area, really. Um, so in, in answer to my question, what you're saying is basically you could probably lay your track in a season given the right kind of conditions. Uh, if next spring is not uh, completely soggy and, and disgusting, uh, probably all of the, the major work can be done in a month. Mm. And then it's going to be down to whether I want to invest the time in, in making my own turnouts or I want to uh, simply get on with the business of running the trains and purchase some commercially made units. That'll be, be a cost benefit. That'll be the limit of my cost benefit analysis. We'll be deciding whether I make or buy turnouts. Well, I've been promising my wife a trip to Montreal, and it probably won't be next year, but it may be the year after. So, if that gives you incentive, it would be wonderful to do a model rail radio on location in that kind of time frame. That would be brilliant. Yes, yes. I'll have to build another uh, wing on the house. <laughs> oh no! We'll, we'll be happy to camp in your workshop uh, to use uh, to use Ben's idea. Yeah, I, I don't mind uh, lying under a lathe or anything like that. So, um, yeah, no, I'm, I'm sure there are probably very nice Ben breakfast facilities actually in your part of the world, which would we'd probably hit up and just uh, come see the trains operate on our on our way through. But um, speaking of these things, we're we're almost approaching our year anniversary of Model Rail Radio. Uh, and this, in and of itself, will probably yield some uh, some interesting show topics and some interesting uh, feedback. Oh, Andrew Chisholm is chiming in as well, saying that he would certainly uh, he's uh, two hours from Montreal, so maybe maybe I'll do the model rail radio tour in a, a couple of years' time uh, with my wife tagging along, um, or maybe just me uh, by myself. Um, anyway, so. Chris, I've, once again, I've completely ruined what had been pre-planned with regards to how we were going to put the show together. I was going to actually, in theory, on paper at least, start the show announcing your Stump the Audience question again. We have received, uh, in the last couple of days, uh, a, a few new entries for Stump the Audience, but I wanted to give the audience uh, an extended opportunity uh, to answer your Stump the Audience question. So, Chris, that question again is, the question is, and I shall uh, take this right verbatim off of the uh, Model Rail Radio Facebook webpage, name three manufacturers of automatic couplers available prior to the introduction of the KD version. And an automatic coupler in this case is defined as allowing for hands-free coupling up of cars. Uh, it didn't say anything about uncoupling. And I have to say that I've, I've probably done myself an injury on this question because I should have said simply working couplers uh, rather than automatic couplers, but, you know, so be it. Um, it's interesting, uh, the research of, of trying to support the answer uh, has been very interesting. And I can remember seeing some of the examples that I found in person 
many years ago. And uh, some people are still using the, uh, the non-KD solutions for their, for their coupling. So it's, uh, it's been an interesting amount of research to, to uh, come up with a, a, what I thought was a decent question that would get people thinking and looking about for, uh, for answers. Certainly, certainly. I think probably the problem is that people are spoiled for choice in terms of the ways to get uh, model rail radio swag. And certainly in the past uh, couple of weeks, the number of iTunes reviews has increased quite dramatically too. Um, although I do have one particular iTunes review um, that I would like to send out a model rail radio t-shirt too. So RL4Sound, uh, that's RL4Sound, um, who left a review on iTunes, please get in contact. Um, the review started great shows uh, and that he'd listened to all the shows recently. Uh, but yes, you have a Model Rail Radio T-shirt with your name on it. Please contact me with a postal address and a T-shirt size. And for the um, fellow from the previous show, who I forgot his is Monica, but um, Sean Emch uh, received his T-shirt today. Actually, he sent me an email uh, first thing this morning. We had corresponded because he was a little concerned that he hadn't received it yet, uh, but arrived first thing this morning. Obviously, uh, Matt Goodman's been modelling his. Uh, been. Uh, has been has been uh, modelling his. Also, I've been in New Zealand. I think you're in the chat currently. I'll I'll send you a model rail radio t-shirt as well. So please email me a postal address and a t-shirt size because Ben is our first uh, iTunes contributor in New Zealand to leave a review. Also, I went on the UK iTunes site, didn't see any reviews. So if you're in the UK. Um, I think I'll probably throw in something a little extra if you leave a model rail radio uh, review on iTunes uh, because it would be wonderful to hear from UK listeners in particular. We've had, well, I mean, we've got a couple of faux UK listeners um, in terms of uh, me and Matt Goodman. Uh, and I guess, well, you get magazines from the UK too, don't you, Chris? There are the, uh, yeah, the two major publications I get are from the UK and, uh, as I was mentioning, I, I got my latest uh, narrow gauge and industrial railway modeling review, and uh, I've been looking through it. One of the one of the articles that really caught my eye was an article on rust and uh, the generation of a realistic looking uh, rust patina on your cars. And uh, they explain something that I was familiar with, which was the the salt technique, but then they also mention a hairspray technique as well. And the the images that accompany the article are absolutely beautiful, as usual. They're actually uh, weathering up a bow-frame simplex industrial locomotive, uh, which was, uh, of course, it was a two-foot gauge ex-World War I uh, locomotive. So it's a particular interest to me. And uh, they go on about scenery and structures and uh, building your own your own locomotives. There's a uh, an article on designing small mechanisms for for locomotives uh, gearboxes, and uh, another yet another one on taking measurements from photographs. So if you want to build something from scratch and you don't have any dimensional information uh, available, no measured drawings, you can actually make some some very good proportional drawings from photographs, uh, bearing in mind that things like uh, Door and window openings and brick heights are all sort of uh, fairly standardized in an area. 
So, uh, again, uh, brilliant magazine. Uh, unfortunately, I, it's it's come up from renewal uh, just uh, with this most recent issue, and I always call the publisher in Wales and have a chat with him every year. And uh, the prices for overseas delivery on the magazine have gone absolutely through the roof, which is horrible uh, from a pocketbook standpoint, but I still... I still maintain that it's it's good enough to uh, to justify the extra cost. And I was asking him, uh, you know, what the response was or what he was going to do in in response to the extended cost. And he says he wasn't sure whether he was going to be able to keep shipping it overseas uh, as the uh, subscribers, you know, were, were starting to get uh, a little bit uh, miffed with uh, the Royal Mail's charges for for sending these things out. And I chatted briefly with him about the possibility of doing some sort of uh, print-on-demand uh, mm. in a North, North American location. Mm. And uh, he didn't say no, uh, but he said he didn't know at this point. But I, I, I'd hate to see this magazine go away. It is such a wonderful magazine, uh, focusing primarily on British uh, and European prototypes and uh, scales from 2 millimeter up into... Uh, well, O scale is typically the largest, but they have ventured higher into uh, the garden sizes occasionally. Just brilliant, but uh, very enjoyable this issue. And um, in in answer to your, uh, I don't know if it was uh, a slap on the wrist for not keeping up with what's going on at Model Railroader, but uh, I went through some that I have from from this year looking at, uh, for instance, the February 2010 issue model railroader, and uh, they were talking about speed matching locomotives, oddly enough, and uh, that kind of tied in with the arrival of my, my speedometer. Um, and I was looking at, I was looking at a, rev- uh, a review on the trains.com website, which you also... Uh, uh, mentioned did have some non-premium or non-subscriber content that could be viewed, and there was a uh, there was a note about the speedometer, and it talked about having an analog uh, readout on the screen and the ability to save uh, uh, data file out. And I couldn't find that anywhere in the JMRI software, so I did a bit of hunting around and went to SourceForge and found out that the development release of that is not available on the website. It was apparently at some point in time, but it's been taken down. So uh, there's more functionality coming very, very soon. And I'm hugely excited about that because I'm such a computer nerd. And anything that allows me to do computers and trains at the same time is a good thing. So, I'm in. <laughs> uh, yeah, that's, there's been a lot of these sort of overlap uh, Venn uh, events occurring lately especially so uh what else can i mention in terms of the in terms of the postage rates this is something which i've found as well in terms of uk publications i think it's it's you know royal mail is a force um to be reckoned with in these regards although i have the same problem with the u.s postal service i think basically postal services internationally i'm not sure whether it's to do with the uh, previously mentioned war on terror or various other things. Uh, but the cost of postage, and particularly the elimination of C-mail, 
which is a phenomenon which just makes everything considerably more expensive. In terms of the in terms of the price, is it in the order of seventy, eighty pounds that kind of ballpark, or is it more than that? Uh, well, it's a quarterly, uh, so there's only four issues a year, and the it ends up being about twenty dollars per issue Canadian, mm-hmm. uh, which you know you look at it and say oh, I can buy a model railroader for seven dollars. Why would mm-hmm. I pay twenty dollars? It's 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 a niche publication the information presented in it is not generally available in any other uh, in any other uh, publication that's uh, that's currently out there so uh, it it has enough appeal to me and a quarter one, four times a year is about as much as I can manage for for <laughs> intake of new information so certainly well, between that and the Garden Rail magazine that I get from, or the Live Steam magazine I get from the UK, which is also quarterly, uh, oddly enough, it, it arrives always one month later than the than the review does. So, very good. Uh, I'm I'm good. I'm good for the whole year with that sort of thing. I I don't need any more data other than the special uh, Modeler's Annual or uh, Narrow Gauge and Industrial Annual that's put out by the company that used to do. Uh, fine scale railroading. So, uh, yeah, uh, it's as I said, a lot of a lot of sort of uh, converging things going on in the hobby for me right now. A uh, bit unusual, really. And as things cool down, do you think you'll uh, you'll approach your basement layout again? Uh, yeah, because uh, what I want to do is is strip out. Uh, a few remaining bits from the previous owners that, uh, here and start putting up the the wall the stud walls and insulation so that this this space is not a uh, a meat locker all winter again this year um, i can 't believe it 's been almost a year since we 've been doing this Tom. I can remember sitting here around Christmas time uh, with uh, wool socks on and a, and a, and a pullover. That was the infamous uh, show where we recorded about an hour and a half, and then reala- I realized I hadn't actually hit record. I think that was probably it, it, why you remember it well. <laughs> it was uh, it was still a good show, uh, very enjoyable. Um, yeah. So what I want to do is, uh, while the weather is still good outside, I have to, you know, uh, sense demands and reason demands that I, I invest my time in the outside because it's going to be not too long from now that. Uh, I'm forced back inside the house and I won't have anything, you know, I need to make, make arrangements to best take advantage of these, uh, situations in the seasons. So I'm, I'm working ahead in the, in the shop. Uh, I've gotten again, this, uh, this lathe that, uh, that showed up Tuesday night and, uh, it has yet to be commissioned at this site. Um, it's just all sorts of things are happening that I really didn't expect to happen uh, in terms of um, opportunities. You think you'll never get a hold of this rare item, you know, so you kind of forget about it and leave it on the back burner. And, um, you know, all of a sudden two of them show up and you're spoiled for choice. Uh, That sort of uh, surprise has been going on a lot recently. But... 
and, and of course, now you're going to be the opposite. It's cooling down. If it cools down in your area, you're going to be outside more often because it, will, it won't be so uh, brutally unpleasant for you. Well, the thing about the cooling weather is that I can start to do mail order again. The local hobby stores, the ones that have remained open, have shortened their hours through the summer months, and it doesn't look like they'll be extending the hours. And the difficulty I find, particularly because the only time I'm out and about and looking at hobby stores is a Saturday morning, is that if they're not open until midday, they've basically lost me as a customer. So my anticipation is, um, particularly the place in your part of the world that does, oh, oh, I'm going to put in a a good amount of of orders with them. Um, And my wife is actually warming to uh, the model rail hobby around her, so to speak. So I'll probably finish up the shelf layout. Um, In answer to your question, actually, you put a question in the chat. The shelf layout is the same layout that I posted with the uh, kind of, well, I've I've learned now not to put track very close to the edge of a shelf layout, but it still has the long uh, piece of track with a slight dip um, on the the leading face, which then goes into uh, a relatively short stub and then a long loop around uh, with a turnout halfway through and two tracks with an engine house at the back. It's the same track that uh, Matt Goodman actually had concerns about in terms of switching, but it's not a switching track at all. I think there'll probably be um, a total of one, maybe two at a pinch locomotives that operate on it, but probably only one. And the main issue is just getting modelling skills up to speed. My hope is to actually do a long, um, straight uh, shelf layout, uh, probably about 20 feet long, and do a lot more interesting things in that one in terms of probably just having a single track running for most of it, but having little towns and industries uh, dot along the way. Uh, and that will be uh, probably worked on in the kind of, uh, well, New Year's time frame as I finish up this layout, um, hopefully with a lot of lessons learned. But no, I think even in the winter months, the... the uh, I mean, we don't really have a garden here. We are very much a kind of desert... Um, desert house in terms of the surrounds so not a lot grows I have a a rosemary bush that I keep alive through the summer months, we tried jasmine last year, didn't have much success so I don't anticipate working in the garden over the uh, winter months but I do find that I actually have more time in winter um, through my day job and even the after hours stuff that I do, the writing that I do most of that goes on through um, probably March through to about November and from the November through to March in fact I anticipate potentially going to Australia uh, for a month this year um, because I can do some work in Australia as well and, and tied over which would be a very interesting model <laughs> reporting live from Australia um, but yeah no, in the summer months it's just very difficult it's difficult to move around we do go out a Saturday morning and run errands uh, we did today uh, but the model stores really are, have, have effectively lost me as a customer. Um, while, while we're on this topic, though, um, we we received quite unexpectedly an email through the week from uh, Ed Olsowitzki, or let me repronounce that, Ed Olsowitzki, uh, and he sent us a flyer. Ed is a native of Syracuse, New York. His NRMA group uh, was getting together and he wanted to present them with a flyer with a wide variety of Model Rail podcasts on there. But we got the leading face. Model Rail Radio was uh, was featured on the front of the flyer. And um, so 
following some communication through the week uh, between uh, Matt Goodman, uh, Chris and myself, we were able to pull together a, a final version, which I put up on the front of the Model Rail Radio site. And thanks to Ed, he will be receiving a Model Rail Radio T-shirt shortly for his efforts, because really it was it was wonderful to uh, to get his uh, his design. So for folks listening in who like the show and are interested in publicising the show, go to the front of the Model Rail Radio site, modelrailradio.com. You'll also see a a photograph of Matt Goodman looking very dapper in his Model Rail Radio T-shirt. And you can download the flyer. It prints uh, three of these uh, brochures, that's the the term Ed used, to the page. And you can actually, uh, you know, print them out, print out, I don't know, half a dozen, a dozen of them, cut them up. Uh, and take them to maybe a, a local hobby store that's interested in carrying it, or if you're doing a meet or an obsession, or you're going to an obsession, or you'd just like to introduce your model railroading buddies to uh, the model rail radio phenomena, then uh, yeah, download the flyer, print it out, pass it around to folks, and uh, you know the more listeners, the merrier. I, I think you there was some toing and froing with regards to the exact wording because Chris was. Uh, well, I don't know what the term would be. Unnecessarily modest, I'd say, um, with regards to his description on the flyer. But uh, download the flyer and no doubt you'll see it's quite an apt description for, for Chris. I was just completely blown away by uh, its generosity in doing this for us, Chris. What, what was your sense of it? Oh, it looks great to me, and I really appreciate the effort that Ed put in to, to, to get it together. But, uh, you know, I'm... I, I said I'm not an expert. I don't even play one on television. I, I don't want to be, you know, put up. I, I make as many mistakes or more than, than any other person in the hobby here. I just happen to like talking about it. And uh, having this chat with you every couple of weeks is, is part of how I enjoy the hobby. Anything that, that comes out of, uh, out of my head that other people find useful is, is a bonus to me. Um, and if all I do is is maybe say something that somebody doesn't agree with or or uh, uh, stimulates a conversation, then that's also a bonus. So um, now I've, I've got to say we have a tremendous amount of activity in the chat tonight, and I think I just missed talking to Chris Shorthouse. If you remember, Chris Shorthouse sent us those questions from New Zealand way back in the in the beginning. Oh, yes, we have a show named after Chris Shorthouse, so shout-outs to Chris. I'm not sure, has he left the chat or is he still in the chat? I, I, I think he was, he was guest 10, and I think he, he was, left. yes. <laughs> oh, I wanted to ask him because he, he had a question about getting the track to match up at the ends of the sections on his layout, and I, I was trying to, to get a sense of whether the, the track stopped short of the end or whether it carried over. Um, well, if we get him back in the chat, we can ask him. Well, failing that, Chris, I know you're a, a loyal listener, so you're probably listening in now uh, and hearing this question if you don't actually get back in the chat. So please do get in contact. Our following in New Zealand is strong. Uh, yeah, we're, we're big on the other side of the planet. I talked about the new Carson's publication, which is the collection of information from Bob Walker's Scratch Builder's Corner column in RMC. This month's the September 2010 issue. He has another column on metalworking, and he talks about 
the lathe and buying a lathe and purchasing one for your own use in the hobby. And uh, he goes through some basics and points people in the right directions. It's, it's quite a neat uh, little two-pager. And uh, next month he says he's going to cover a little bit of information on, uh, on milling machines for, for use in the hobby as well. And while I think of it, we're on the topic of, of magazines. Um, O-Scale Trains uh, is a terrific publication if you're into the, uh, into the larger scale. And their back issues are available for download for free from their website. Oh, you're joking. Uh, no. Once oh, that's they a get, phenomenal resource. And, and, well, once they get past, I think, two years old, they digitize them and put them up on the uh, on their website, and wow. uh, they have some brilliant articles. And uh, in the last three or four issues, I guess last four issues, a fellow by the name of Tom Mix, uh, who is a, a brilliant model maker, has been going through a detailed series of articles on the construction of a diesel from scratch. So uh, the techniques that are in that series of uh, articles are fabulous and useful for just about any scale, and you can translate them into making any sort of prototype uh, locomotive you want uh, of the boxy variety. So yes, there's, there's many, many things going on right now in the hobby, and if you look at the announcements from the National Train Show that just happened, the 75th Train Show, we have... Again, we've got more and better stuff in the hobby than we've ever had, ever, since day one. <laughs> you can't get more better stuff than you can get right now. So, um, so in terms of your uh, particular interests, Chris, what did you see that excited you? What, in terms of the, uh, the, the new releases? Certainly. Oh, uh, dozens of new steam locomotives in... Uh, in die cast and plastic, uh, dozens of new cars uh, of uh, more variety than there have been in the past. Uh, I mean, everybody's got a, a sort of a 40-foot AAR boxcar or uh, the, the Penzi uh, PS1 boxcar. Everybody sort of brought out those things, but now you're getting into the, the variations on bulkhead flats that were designed for lumber service or paper service and... Uh, uh, boxcars that were converted to automotive use or grain use or furniture use. So they have different doors and they have ends that are op openable and uh, they're making new, uh, new types of trucks uh, that they haven't had before. They've always had arch bar trucks and they've always had roller bearing trucks, but now they're introducing uh, uh, variations on those S2s and, and national steel car trucks and, and all manner of things. And it just blows me away. And they're doing it in every scale, of, except S scale, of course. But, you know, that's, that's my, I'm going to bear that cross to wherever I go. I'm not, uh, not going to worry about that because I've got enough to keep me busy with the stuff I already have. I don't need new stuff. I just, if you're starting out in the hobby, you are, as you say, Tom, you are spoiled for choice. Absolutely spoiled for choice. I, I would pity anybody who had to come in and make a decision about what they wanted to do right now because it's just, it's exploded, especially with the um, uh, low cost of, uh, of actually the low relative cost of publishing these days. If you want to self-publish a book, 
uh, like Lance Mindheim does, it's actually cost effective to do so. And you Certainly. can do it on demand. You don't have to stock. You don't have to have uh, a thousand books printed and have them uh, take up all the space in your sitting room until you sell the last one. Yeah. You can print one or two at a time, and that's brilliant. Jim. Hi there. So Excuse for me. folks listening in who aren't familiar with you, uh, could you give an introduction to the listening audience? My name's James Lincoln. I'm a conductor with CSX. I've uh, been a conductor for three years. I have been a HO scale model editor for a long time, and uh, I just made a decision to change to Proto 48. So uh, that's the long and the short of it, I guess. That's the short, short version. Okay, so in terms of being a conductor, how does that change your model railroading interest? Uh, what it did was it made me more detail-oriented uh, because I was so up close and personal to this stuff. Uh, you know, when you have air brake piping and everything in your face and you have to inspect it, uh, it becomes much more noticeable and you kind of want to say, you know, I, wa I want to model that. And it, it ch kind of changed me from, you know, saying, oh, well, you know, this ready-to-run Athens car, of course, the new ones are nice, but, the, you know, these ready-to-run cars are fine. They'll do, doesn't bother me. Now it's like, you know, I kind of want to put the cut levers on because I know what it all does, you know, so in, in a way, that, in that way it changed me. And then being, well, being <laughs> anybody that's seen any of my posts, no, I'm kind of a, uh, a track fiend. I like detailing track. And that's another reason to go to Porter 48 is to uh, be able to do that and not lose my eyesight in the process. <clears throat> yes, I certainly think being a, being a conductor would get you very heavily involved in, in modeling particular regions to kind of high-level approach of typical accuracy. Chris, sorry I interrupted you. You had a question? Uh, no, I, I, what I wanted to, to ask Jim actually was um, being a model railroader and being a an employee of the railroad is do you find that that you are treated differently because perhaps people might be thinking that you're i don't know paying more attention to the details on the cars that you know from the wrong aspect i don't know does anybody give you any grief about that as, as being a model railroader no because you don't tell them oh. <laughs> <laughs> okay. All no, right. no the, the rule, it used to be, actually I had a conversation with someone, with an engineer who's uh, a model railroader and kind of got out of it. Now he's trying to get back into it. And um, he worked for a couple of train stores and he's, you know, he's talked to me about it. And he's, it for the longest time, it was a horrible stigma. He says, actually about 70 to 80% of the guys out here are either rail fans or model railroaders, but they will not say it. They will not, they will not tell you unless they get to know you quite well and know that you're not going to go tell everybody else in the world because there's, there's certain ones that it's a, it's quite the stigma because of certain employees that have come in. It was okay for a while. This is what he was explaining to me. It was okay for a while. It was starting to become more accepted. And then this one employee in particular, um, he explained to me some of the things that he was doing and he was just over the top. It, you need to be able to separate um, the hobby 
from the job when you're on the job, if that makes sense. Oh, yeah, it um, makes that, perfect sense, yeah. And and that's what they're afraid of, because they're afraid that you'll pay more attention to, oh, I want to get a picture of this, than your job, and then either you, not, well, they don't really care about you. I mean, they do, but they don't. Uh, and you get them fired because you weren't doing your job, or you get them killed because you weren't doing your job because you were paying more attention to your hobby. Yeah, while on the yeah, I can, I can uh, commiserate. Yeah, so you... You are in a unique position, though, as a conductor. You get to see aspects of operation that and most of us as, as modelers and rail fans can only uh, guess at or suppose or, or um, uh, you know, make up, make up things for our obsessions because we don't know how it's really done. How is being an employee improved your ability to, to replicate uh, what goes on in in the model? Um, you understand, like you say, you understand the things that are necessary, the things that go on, the amount of walking that there is. Um, it, you know, it, it can be brutal <laughs> at times. Um, I, I I owned a um, a a um a regular freight it was uh, not a freight it was a van train what we on conrail we call them van trains everybody else in the world probably knows them as intermodal or piggybacks mm-hmm. and i was on a van train and two times in a row uh going through chatham new york which you may or may not know where that is but it's uh it's on the other side of the river it's just on just on the other side of the the hudson river from uh it's on the east side of the hudson river uh, Chatham is actually where the Boston and Albany and the Rutland Railroad crossed. Uh, and a lot of the track is still there um, going south. The, the northbound track from for the, on the Rutland has gone. But, um, and um, there's a defect detector right there. And two times in a row, uh, two trips in a row going east, I said we, that I didn't, but the train set off the detector. And um, what... The rule says is because the the detectors only um, uh, they only report three defects. So if you get three defects, you have to walk the entire train and inspect it. How long and is it, the train in this case? Uh, the first time it was nine thousand six hundred feet, and the second time was nine thousand three hundred feet. So two miles <laughs> in the middle of the and, night, and then you have to walk back. Fortunately, because you have to call that you have to call the dispatcher and tell them what's going on. And in Chatham, what happens is it goes from single track to double track, and we were able to um, pull the train clear of the interlocking at CP 176, which is just on the other side of uh, the downtown Chatham. Uh, we pulled it clear of the interlocking, and then uh, I had uh, I had the dispatcher put a block on the the second track so that I could walk on that track because in between in along the train, there's three bridges and, um, which are, you know, it's 20 or 30 foot drop down into rivers. Yeah. I I wasn't overly interested in falling into the river in the middle of the night. So, uh, you have to call the dispatcher and he, uh, he locks out the track on his computer so that nothing can pass. And, uh, you only have to do one side. Fortunately, um, the first time it was frustrating because the the hot box that was detected was the first the uh, axle three four and five 
which is the lead locomotive. <laughs> oh. So, oh. so then I had to walk the whole train because, you know, of a mistake with the defect detector on the, the lead locomotive, which we knew there was a problem with, but it wasn't, it, it wasn't a hot box. It was um, the, um, the locomotive uh, computer had cut out the lead traction motor. So, oh. uh, which isn't a big deal. That happens uh, with, with AC locomotive. This was a AC 4400, if anybody knows what those are. But the difference between modern AC locomotives and DC locomotives is the, um, if a traction motor is cut out on an AC locomotive, what the computer will do is take the electricity that, it, that it's producing and just divvy it up between the other five traction motors. So the other five traction motors can actually produce the same as the six traction motors, uh, the, the same tractive effort. So it just so you're, you're overdriving them then for a period of time. Yeah, a little bit. It's not normally a problem, but um, because a, a van train is not particularly heavy, they're long, they're not heavy. Um, and but so that's what we just, you know, me and the engineer were like, oh, you know, and then the dispatcher came on and said, oh, well, too bad. You get to walk the whole train. But they called um, oh, car inspector out of Selkirk because I knew this was going to take an hour and a half, two hours to walk the train. They called a car uh, inspector out of Selkirk and he came and picked me up when I got to the end of the train. And so he drove me to the front. I see. Well, you can't, you, you have to treat every report of a f- possible failure as a serious problem and go investigate it. You can't just say, oh yeah, that detector always gives a false reading. We just keep going. Correct. You have to yeah. stop and you have to, I mean, one time, same detector, different, different, um, situation. Um, I reported a hot box and it happened to be on a hazardous material car. It was a car load of um, nitrous oxide. And when the axles that are reported are on a hazardous material car, um, normally you have to set that car out. There is no question. If you find it, it happens to be that car, that car gets set out at the nearest possible point, Um, which really irritated the town of Chatham because we we had the entire town of Chatham blocked for half an hour, 45 minutes. Oh, yeah, out. all the crossings, yeah. <laughs> setting out this car. And where I was, nobody could see me. <clears throat> uh, I was down where the switches were, and nobody, nobody knew where I was. And all the, and all the, uh, but the, it was, it was kind of close to the front end of the train. So the engineer was right next to the road, and all the people were yelling and screaming at him, and the cops came <laughs> and, and yelled mm-hmm. at him. And he, the cops like, you can't, you can't block these crossings. What are you doing? You got to move this train. And he says, well, you know, we had a defect reported on a hazardous material car. Now, if you really feel like us pulling that car through your town and having it derail and blow up your town, we'll do that. Is that what you want? Uh, no. How no, I you? guess they said no. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, now, uh, are you, you're in constant radio contact with the engineer. Can you talk directly to a dispatcher remotely, or uh, do you have to get everything relayed through the engineer for these movements? That depends. Um, so, you know, obviously, when I'm up on the head end, if I'm up on the head end in the locomotive, then obviously I'm, I have a conversation with a dispatcher. And then my radio, um, if, if I'm in the right spot, I can talk directly to the dispatcher. Sometimes I can and sometimes I can't. Sometimes I actually can talk better with the dispatcher than I can with the um, engineer because the dispatcher's radio, he's on a repeater. And uh, the range the range of my handheld radio is one one mile, maybe two 
on the right occasion. So sometimes I can't talk to the engineer, but because the uh, dispatcher is on a repeater, he can hear me. Okay. Yeah, that makes sense. Now, how, how about the fitness level that you had to maintain in order to, to support the movement of trains through, is there any training you can do to, to improve that? Or is that sort of, you either, you've either got it or you don't. No, it's definitely, it's just a matter of getting used to it. Um, mm-hmm. lose weight, lose weight. And it's not a problem. You know? <laughs> okay. Then I'm sunk. I can't be a conductor then. Uh, well, not necessarily. Uh, because <laughs> when I started out, when I was in training, um, I, when I went to school as a test that you have to take, cause you have to hang on the ladder for, and when I say hang, I just, there's no other word for it. It's, you know, you stand on the ladder, I suppose, but the word that everybody uses is you hang on it because you're, mm-hmm. if you, if you let go, you'll fall. So it's not like you're standing on a on a uh, a step ladder where if you if you let your hands go you're standing on the step ladder you hope uh, right. on a on on the ladder on the side of a car you let you let your hands go you fall off <laughs> yes because um, yeah. because your your weight is leaning back and that's what happens is your wrist your wrists and your forearms get tired it's it's what happens but when I was in training uh, my on the job training I had an instance where the 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 um, we, you, in Framingham, um, you, what would happen is you go to the arrival track, which is called the fourth iron, and then you shove that, you shove that track. Uh, the engines will go to the west end of the track, and you know there may be eighty car, you know seventy, eighty cars on this track, and the engines go to the west end, and then uh, somebody, either the utility or the um, or the conductor, will go to the east end of the track, and you have to ride the shove into Framingham Yard. You actually go around a leg over Y. Because Framingham, North Framingham Yard, is um, perpendicular to the main line. So you have to shove it through an interlocking, past a passenger station, and then down onto whatever track they want you to shove it down onto. And that's about a mile. It's a, you know, it, it's a good, it's, it's a decent shove. It's three quarters of a mile to a mile. And it was, this was the first time I really had to do it. And um, as I was shoving in, um, I just lost, I, I lost the strength in my hands and I knew I wasn't going to be able to hang on anymore. And, uh, so I, uh, I stopped the movement, got off and walked. Um, since that time I, you, you know, you can practice, you know, you, if, you know, if you want to strengthen your hands, um, do hand exercises or, or you, the more you do it, the more you kind of get used to it. And then you, you figure out things that you can do to rest your arms on a long shove, you know, you just, you change positions and things like that. Best thing to do is lose weight. Um, it's harder in the winter, obviously, because you have a big old winter jacket and all the, you know, right. Heavy boots and the whole nine yards. Oh yeah. Yeah. But no, there isn't, you just get used to it. So as a conductor, sorry, no, I'm sorry. As a conductor, then it's, it's just you and the engineer on the train. It's, there's no extra brakeman or anything riding the train. It's just the two of you. Do I understand that correctly? On a road freight, yes. On uh, most of the yard switches, there is a third man. Uh, but on a road freight, yes, it's just me and the engineer. Okay, so if you have to do any any intermediate pickups or drop-offs during that time, it's you that gets down and does all the leg work. Yes. Um, uh, yeah. What's, I mean, what's, what's the level of uh, aggravation involved? Our, our stump, stump the audience question uh our first stump the audience question talks about automatic couplers and i'm just uh-huh. wondering uh, as if you're 
you're the guy down on the ground. They're not really automatic couplers. They're semi-automatic. You're, you're having to align the couplers and, and get the faces open so that the mating cars coming together can actually hook up. What kind of problems do you have as, a, as an employee uh, with the real, the real thing? Well, uh, if anybody is familiar with um, uh, what are you, sergeant, uh, sergeant, sergeant couplers yep. uh, in HO scale, they work essentially just like the real thing because there's no centering spring or anything like that. And well, here's an here's a interesting example. You, you, you want to know something bad that can happen when the, 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 uh, the couplers don't mate? In, in Framingham Yard, um, there is track two. It's kind of a, it's a it's really obnoxious little. It has a it's a it's a jog in the in the in the switch and and what happens when you're kicking cars uh, as you're kicking cars, which is do you have do you know what I mean by kicking kicking cars? You're you're shoving them into the into the spot with uh, the coupler faces ready to uncouple the the pins up. Is that it? Well, what you do is you bleed all the you bleed all of the air. You put the train into emergency, and then you bleed the air off, so there's no brakes on the cars. And well, so you're emptying the reservoirs, then. You empty the reservoirs, so there's, there's no brakes in the cars. And then what you'll do is say you you have three cars that need to go down track two. I'll I'll stand in a particular spot, and I'll say you know, CSXT sixty two twenty four. Uh, you know, come come north three cars for the pin. He'll come north three cars. He starts to slow down, and just as the cut lever gets to me, I'll say kick, and he and he throws it in, into notch eight, pushes against the cars. I pull the pin because now the the slacks run in, and I can I can do it, and then I tell him stop, and the, he stops as short as he can, and the car will just float down the track. It, it, you just wreck the car. The car is freewheeling, though. There's no there's no brakes on it. Do you have do you have someone to to uh, work the manual brake wheel, or is it uh, just going down to slow down on its own through friction? In, normally, according to the rule, um, according to the rule, what you do when you're going to do this is you put an anchor car, you put one or two anchor cars down on the track. So your first two cars, say on track two, you'll put the first two cars and put handbrakes on them. And if you know you're going to be putting in 10 cars into track two, you'll put these two cars so that you have space for eight or nine cars between that last car that you just put in with a handbrake on it and the clearance point. And so you put two, hit, two cars down there with uh, handbrakes on it. The reality is for years and years and years before this, uh, a lot of yards are built in what's called a bowl. So you can kick the, and they're built so you can kick cars into them. And so the the, uh, the car will drift down into the track, and then it starts to go uphill. It's downhill into the track, and then uphill, and uphill as you go over. Okay. Right. Yeah. So it'll it'll go up. It'll stop at the other end, and then roll to the middle, and then you can just keep kicking cars down onto them. Okay. Uh, and and but 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 you have to know that like tracks eight, nine, and ten are flat. You don't kick cars unless you have uh, <laughs> uh, unless you have anchors on. Tracks 9, 10, 11, you don't kick cars down 9, 10, 11 without an anchor because they will, they will go right out the other end. So anyway. the problems, the couplers that you've, you've got here, uh, you were going to explain the problem the coupler yeah. had. This, and this happened. Um, when I kicked the car, there was, I forget 
what I did wrong, but it ended up the car didn't really want to roll very well. And it was a um, 50-foot gondola car, just junky old gondola car. And it stalled. It stopped on the uh, the curved part of the track two switch. So it, it's sitting there. And now we were still holding on to 50 cars. Now, when we're holding on to 50 cars, there's no brakes in any of the cars. So the engineer has to stop that train, that cut of cars, with just the brakes on the two locomotives that he has. So you have to take that into account. And when you say stop, he may have it in full service. And he's going to stop in 50 or 60 feet because he has no brakes on those 50 cars. It's just the two locomotives. And what happened is the car stalled. So now what I have to do is I I bring him in and I just want to give that car a tap. And just give it a tap to get it moving again and down the track. He was coming in, and I saw that the couplers were not going to made up because they were on a corner. The, the two cars are just, they, they were too far off. Right. And um, I told him to stop when he was 30 or 40 feet away, and he came into the cars. He couldn't stop, and the, the couplers bypassed. So they, they totally missed each other, and the coupler on the car that I was coming into it with went underneath the frame of the gondola. Oh, they, the draft gear? Uh, yes, it went on, it went underneath and picked the gondola up off the ground. And so now the gondola is up on two wheels going around the corner, getting shoved down the track. <laughs> and what the, the really experienced guy that was there with me, he says, if you hadn't told him to stop when you did, if he had gone eight more feet, it would have rolled the rail and the train would have gone onto the ground. Uh, well, that's good then. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and what we had to do is because now the, this, this car is sitting on top of a coupler of the other car. And when I pulled him ahead, it just stayed there. It didn't come off. So what we had to do is uh, set the handbrake onto the car, onto the gondola that was up in the air. And so that we could pull out with the train and it stayed there. And then we were able to, um, adjust the couplers and, and and shove it in. But that really, you know, those things happen. And when you're on curves, particularly with short wheelbase cars, it can use, sometimes it is impossible to get the couplers to, to mate because that's what happens on the model too, right? You know, it happens all the time. Yeah. And if you're using surgeons, you know, you have to, the, the coupling, the, the, the surface that you're coupling with is very small. I mean, if you look at a, cu- a real uh, prototype coupler, I mean, it's only six inches. You have a, you know, and if you open both couplers, that's why a lot of times in well, the prototype, we open both couplers so that you have a bigger target because your whole target is only between 10 and 12 inches wide that you're shooting at. And according to the rule, I can't, I cannot walk between cars. So, the cars have to be feet, 50 feet apart for me to adjust the couplers according to the rule, which is kind of tough. Well, that that rule came about because of the early days with the Lincoln pins. There were guys losing hands and arms and and limbs and their lives because uh, they had to be right between the cars during the coupling operation. So I could see why, you know, you wouldn't want to be there when anything's moving. It's all hundreds of thousands of tons of stuff. There's no stopping it. You're not going to. You're not, it won't even notice you if you get between them. Your movement 
went into a new scale. For, for folks listening yeah. in who are not familiar with the scale, can you can you define it and uh, give some examples of why you're moving to it and the kind of stuff that you'll be building with it? I'm Good. going to Proto 48 because um, I just thought I had I had kind of toyed with it because I'd always looked at two scale two rail O and said, man, that look just looks cool. And then I didn't realize I liked the heft of it, and I didn't realize there was a difference that. The, uh, the actual width of the rails are five feet, not four feet, eight and a half. And then, you know, all the, uh, the flanges and everything are too big. And, and I was getting into kind of going to the Proto 87, uh, laying track with individual tie plates and, and the, the detail in the frogs and the points and the throw rods. You know, what the heck am I doing this for? I can actually see what I'm doing. Uh, and actually, I, I put in the chat, it's, it's interesting is that... Um, on a model, on an HO scale model car, you would probably use um, point, uh, you know, ten thousandths or twelve thousandths um, um, diameter wire for your hand grabs. If you put, you know, if you're going to put on new wire hand grabs on a, onto a car or something, you'd use twelve thousandths wire. Well, in O scale, that's actually five eighths of an inch. It's the right size. <laughs> so yes, if you, excellent. With, you know, if you use twelve thousandths wire, which was, I'm doing, I'm I'm scraping off the. Uh, the uh, molded-on grab iron. The first project that I'm doing is scraping off the, the molded-on grab irons onto a uh, off of a uh, a Trainman uh, Atlas O Trainman um, railbox boxcar uh, and putting in 12 thousandths wire, and it looks fantastic. Now, if I could just stop breaking number 80 drills inside the <laughs> holes, <laughs> like if you ever figure out how to do that, let me know because. That I've got all these little drill index boxes with empty 79 and 80 and 78 spots because I keep breaking them. I don't mind breaking them. I just don't. I don't like breaking them inside the hole. And what are you using as a lubricant when you're drilling? Uh, yeah, now there's a great point. Maybe I use a lubricant. <laughs> uh, I, have, I haven't been using anything. <laughs> um, uh, how about uh, how about if you go to a sewing store? Uh, I don't know what, what kind of uh, fabric land is one of the sewing stores we have up here. And in the sewing section, they ha- in the tool section, they have a little cake of beeswax mm-hmm. that's meant to, to use to lubricate uh, needles if you're, if you're sewing through uh, uh, jeans and, and other thick material, denim and other thick material. And I bought, a, I bought a cake of the beeswax, and what I do is I, I run my drill bit uh, just through the beeswax before I drill something with it. And I find that that, that helps a lot. So it, it, maybe, uh, maybe that'll work for you. Would uh, yeah, soap work as well? A uh, big pardon? Would standard bar soap work as well? Or graphite? Or is, is the, what's the property in the beeswax particularly? Because I've heard of both soap, graphite, and beeswax, but for different applications. I think the problem with with graphite is if you're working with certain uh, certain materials, it'll it might stain the material. Okay. Um, and I don't know soap soap is going to be dependent upon uh, the formulation of it, uh, like ivory soap versus sunlight soap versus uh, Dove or Got something it. like that. They've probably got lotions or other uh, oils in them that might uh, might later on prevent you from from getting a finish to adhere in that area. So. I think maybe the the beeswax being a kind of a natural product and might be the most appropriate to use. When I used to, uh, I used to have a 
uh, tractor trailers, and it would make a big difference if you uh, dip the uh, dip the drill. If you had to drill holes into the hardened frame, the the, the hardened frame. If you dip the drill the drill bits in um, motor oil, anything, <laughs> anything. Buttercup. Like yeah, it would it would make a huge make. It, I mean, it would make the drills last longer more than anything else, and it would also uh, make it much easier to drill into the frames because those were brutal. Um, quite the yeah, I've drilled a couple of those. Yeah, quite quite the change in uh, <laughs> quite the change in venue. You know, to, you know, drilling inch and a half holes to drilling number eighties. <laughs> well, it, it's all it's all about um, uh, reducing the the friction and the the number eighty drill right. bit has such a small cross section in the flutes that any any binding. Uh, mm-hmm. Will cause you cause the snap. Now, are you using like a Dremel tool or are you using a pin vise? Pin vise. Okay. Well, yeah. The problem with a pin vise is that uh, that any uh, is it the the one with the um, that looks like a Yankee screwdriver with the no the collar that runs up and down. Yeah. The no. problem I have with the pin vise is that as soon as you get any as soon as you're off the axis, yeah, it puts enough stress on it to snap the drill bit. I actually found that the Yankee screwdriver version of that uh, of that little mini pin vise, mm-hmm. uh, I can hold I can hold the end of it with uh, the little spinning collar with one finger and move the the sliding collar up and down and it keeps it much much straighter. Mm. And I, I I stopped breaking the drill I stopped mostly breaking drill bits with that. <laughs> it's, it's better. It's much better. Right. No, that's a good idea. That's a good idea. But uh, no, I've uh, I I really haven't done much with it yet. Um, that's the first project that I started, and then I got called to go on the Q119 this past couple of days. So huh. I had, you haven't put new trucks on it yet, then? Not yet, no. Okay. Um, that's that's another one of the things that I want to do. I'm uh, actually seriously interested in making. Uh, I want to get the plans, and I know there's been talk about it, but I would like to get the plans and machine a uh, uh, a kit. I would like to make a kit to build roller bearing trucks and make them scale. You know, I have the, I had some, I've had some thoughts about that and I want to, you know, I would really like to do, cause there's kits of all sorts of any other truck that you want to do, but no roller bearings. And, um, the thing that's really, the ones with the end, the end caps actually turn while the, uh, while the, uh, truck is in motion. Yes. Yeah. They yeah. just released those in S scale actually. So I've got one up. Finally, I've got one up. <laughs> <laughs> but what, one of the things that you notice a lot, and in a lot of the HO scale trucks, you'll see it, is the uh, the lettering is very prominent on the side of the trucks. There's a lot of writing on the side of, uh, you know, raised lettering on the side of uh, roller bearing trucks and all different mm-hmm. things. And um, kind of, you know, if you're fascinated in these things, you can go to the roller bearing, the ASF website, and you can understand what each one of those markings means. Um, but it, it's I, I found it fascinating. It just just going to Proto 48 and realizing there's no roller bearing modern roller bearing trucks in Proto 48, and it's going to be a pain to make any to be Proto 48. Um, well, you gonna, thought, you're going to be in the modern era though. You're going to do something yeah. in the modern era in P48. Okay. Yeah, 1980s, you, 90s. Yep. Uh, have you picked out a, a locomotive yet uh, that you want to start with? <laughs> Yeah, I, I don't do anything easily. Uh, I uh, actually, I was going to get a Red Caboose GP9. And yeah. then talking on with people on the internet and finding some things out, 
what you want to do with a Red Caboose GP9 is to repower it with the kit from P&D Hobbies. And uh, so the Red Caboose GP9 is $250, $300. Then you're going to throw away the motor and the trucks and spend another $240 on this repower kit. You just sell the old power to the, the old wide five guys. They'll buy it. Will they? Well, they they need to put they they're going to put another shell on top of it, right? They'll do a Jeep Seven or a Jeep Eighteen or something on top of it, right? Well, they might. Well, but what I was going to say was you can you can order the shell by itself. You can order the frame by itself. So the shell and the frame from the Plain Hobbies is only eighty bucks, um, and then and then you can just buy the repower kit for two hundred and forty dollars, and then for another ninety dollars you can Proto Forty Eight it because uh, Protocraft makes the kit to Proto 48, the P&D Hobbies trucks. Um, Protocraft are horrible people. I, I, I look at their stuff and I say, oh, how can you, how can you tempt us with things that look like this? <laughs> yeah. That, that's, well, that's, well, like with the couplers, I'm going to, I, you know, my plan is to, is to is start installing, as I'm starting to do this, start putting Protocraft couplers on my stuff because, um, they actually work. They look and function like prototype couplers. Uh, as in, if you put a piece of chain, proto- you know, O-scale chain on your cut lever on your car or your locomotive and pull the pin, it pulls the pin on the coupler. But you, those are a kit, right? The, those, uh, the protocraft couplers are a kit of pieces, right? Um, some of them are. I mean, I, I'm guessing they are. Uh, the one I saw was, but then there's some that look like the, the couplers assembled. I don't, I'm not 100% sure. Maybe it was just a mock-up for the photograph. But um, <laughs> I'm going to use that. And the, the, he does sell one with a piece of uh, metal already installed so that it will function like a magnetic coupler if you want it to. So you can hook it to the pin on the cut lever or you can use a magnet that he sells and then um, uh, and use the couplers that way. Oh, so, yeah. yeah, I'm I'm going I'm going I'm going all out. I I was even thinking with the trucks. It says you know seeing if you could get a get with um, uh, Archer rivets and see if they could produce the lettering in O scale that you could put on decals on each truck. If you had a particular car with a that had particular markings on the trucks, uh, you could replicate that i mean if that it was easier whether machining it is easier i'm not sure well that's the archer transfers uh does yeah those uh water slide sort of rivet patterns that you can put right. on your yeah, those are brilliant mm-hmm. uh, i don't know you could probably do the lettering if you had an engraving machine or a pantograph uh mm-hmm. reducing machine but uh ugh, it's it's Tricky. a lot a lot of work yeah well so in some ways, um, that's going to be work. I have a couple of thoughts on, you know, pursuing some machining. Um, uh, and uh, I used to be a draftsman. I actually, when I went to high school, I was trained as a mechanical draftsman. So, uh, you know, reading drawings, making drawings, and making these really intricate cross sections. And, you know, because I figured if you could um, machine out the, because if anybody looks at a modern truck anyway, I, I don't know too many of the, the uh, older ones, but they're hollow. Well, they're mostly hollow. And uh, one thing you really lose, particularly in the Atlas trucks, is they're just solid pieces. They're actually the right width, scale-wise, they're the right width. But um, they're just solid pieces. They don't have any of the holes that 
prototype trucks have. And if you could machine the side so that you had all the holes and then you just assembled it and either glued it together or soldered it together or something, I don't know. It's, this is, you know, just gelling in my brain. Um, and if you could assemble the whole thing and then, you know, hopefully if you were able to do uh, it the right way and it wasn't ferociously complicated, you could have the lettering on the outside as well. Um, because this, it, it, it was fascinating to me because after I was thinking about this, now I go on the Q119 and I'm standing three feet away from these trucks as the, and the, on, a, on, um, on, uh, on intermodal equipment. The trucks are kind of like up in your face. I mean, they're really, right. they're totally exposed. So you can look at these things. Well, what we call five bangers, which are the, um, the five platform spine cars. We, we use a lot of spine cars. Uh, because we don't we we're, we don't have room for double stacks. So on the B and A, there's a lot of spine cards. So as the you know we hook on to whatever track we're hooking in, we're pulling the, the the cars. And I'm looking at the trucks on and every single truck. You know you've got what uh, five trucks, five six trucks, six trucks on a uh, spine car. Yeah. Well, there are four different styles of trucks. <laughs> Four, four different styles of roller-bearing trucks. Each one passes, like, this one's different, the next one's different, the next one's different, oh, that one's the same, and the next two are different. It, it was amazing. There's a lot of variation in trucks. You don't think... So does, that, does that happen when, they, when they're in, for, in the shop for repair? Do they just put the next available truck on that's, that meets the weight requirements? Is that it? Yes. Yeah, if, if something's broken and they happen to have a, you know, this is the truck they have on hand, put it on. So yeah. going around uh, on your model and trying to get all the trucks identical on every car is is probably the least prototypical thing to do. Is that what you're saying? No, not really. But if you <laughs> said you wanted to mix it up, it's totally, I mean, on the same car. You know, if you've got like a box car, mm-hmm. probably those trucks are going to be the same. Um, okay. But on, but on a big, long, you know, spine car where there's, you know, six trucks involved, that's, I mean, a, a five-platform spine car is considered one car um and uh it's not uncommon at all and in fact it's probably more common than not that each one of those trucks is different or at least there's three different styles two or three different styles of trucks on that one spine car at least the ones at least the ones i was looking at but these spine cars are you know 10 12 15 years old so you know lord knows how many times they've been in the shop and worked on and whatever but you couldn't pick a simple project for your first uh, project. No, no, no. You want to make a, a realistic truck for your first project. That's, no, that's, not my first, that, that's not my first project, but that's something I'm investigating. <laughs> and if I can actually, I would love to be able to accomplish it. And then uh, I know that Protocraft, they're working on it, but it's six to seven months away anyway. And I'm sure they'll have a 100-ton truck and a 70-ton truck. They won't have all the permutations. Did you uh, see the new Pullman's uh, six-wheel truck? I did. I mean, that thing's gorgeous. Oh, Pricey. Man. Pricey. Well, yeah, I'd hate to equip a fleet of passenger cars with them, but, oh, man, is it beautiful. Oh, well. Oh, yeah. Well, I, I didn't realize when I first looked at the Protocraft couplers, those, the couplers of the price on the list on the website says, I think it's $67, $65 mm-hmm. something. And I'm like, good God. And then I went in, and it's, it's for a set of, you know, it's for five pair. Oh, well, that's not so bad. <laughs> that's not much worse, really, than, than uh, a good-looking coupler in, in HO, frankly. 
Yeah. Yeah. I mean, well, believe it or not, the surgeons, uh, the surgeons, sergeants, I don't know what anybody want to constantly call them. Um, they're not much more expensive than uh, KD 58s if you buy the kits. Yes. If you buy the, if you buy the kits on the regular Type E coupler, um, they're, I think, 50 cents more, maybe a dollar. But I think it's like 50 cents more per coupler if you're willing to assemble the couplers yourself. Yeah, if I saw a number of the uh, EC64, which were the S-scale ones that Frank used mm-hmm. to offer. Yep. And uh, if you were careful, you could get uh, one more coupler out of the pack because you always had extra springs yes. and extra balls and extra parts. So you'd actually get five couplers out of a pack. Mm-hmm. And uh, I found that to be extremely good value for money. Uh, ex- you know, despite the frustration level of trying to put together the the couplers, mm-hmm. but um, you know he he discontinued those. So I'm I'm waiting patiently for them to be reintroduced as as diecast, and that may happen, that may not. Right. The one nice thing Surgeon has in HO is they also do the um, the upper, you know, the uh, the tank car couplers, which have got the upper and the lower shelf, the the, oh, the shelf couplers. Yeah. 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 Now. Uh, just for people who who may not know, the shelf couplers uh, were designed in order to keep cars upright during a derailment. Is that correct? It's no. What it yeah, I guess I guess that's correct. What it is is so that the couplers don't uncouple in a derailment, particularly on tank cars, and so that the car that's next to it won't, you know, slide up and then pierce the tank. Pierce the car. Okay. Right. And they work makes, in, in, yeah. in H in HO. They work just like they do. They do that because um, sometimes if you're if the magnets aren't working just right, you, you know, mm-hmm. on a KD in a KD coupler, you can just pick the car up and uncouple it. You don't have to put a, you know, if you want to put your you know O five O it, pick the car up and uncouple it. Yes. The the cars will if you have a double shelf coupler on a Surgeon, <laughs> and even if it's coupled to a regular Type E coupler. It will not uncouple. It will not. <laughs> you have to flip the cars upside down, and then the, the ball bearings drop, and then it will uh, uncouple. But the, the, those they function just like they do on the prototype, which can be very frustrating. It's like, oh, let me just pull it. Yeah, it's not. It's not coming apart. Yeah. Well, yeah. Half the time you're trying to put cars together that won't stay together, and now you've got a coupler that won't let go. It's uh, yes. It's a bit of a frustration. Uh huh. But uh, I mean, those are some of the things that just and getting on to, you know, with like with the track work, if, if people have seen my post anywhere, I'm just nuts because that's about all I've ever done on model railroads. I've never finished one. I always find a new way to lay track and I stop what I'm doing and I go into the new way of laying track. And then I do that for a while and I find another new way to lay track that's even more detailed. I'll do that for a while. So. I've, I've never, my, everybody that knows me, it's like, are you ever going to finish? <laughs> are you ever going to finish a model railroad? Uh, no. Or are you going to, are you going to use the steel rail on individual ties then? Uh, With what? High plates pro- and spikes? In Proto 48? Oh yeah. Yeah. Oh yeah. I figured it's actually going to save me money. I, I mean, <laughs> half as many ties and tie plates. That's, so, I was doing uh, what are you going to use for a, a sub road bed? What, what, uh, just directly onto plywood? Or are you going to use homosote? Are you going to use something else? That's a fascinating question. Um, yeah, um, 
I haven't figured that out. I've thought about home assault, but I haven't investigated it. The other thing was I was considering just doing spine roadbed and um, laying the ties right on the spine as opposed to having home assault or anything like that. I haven't, I'm, I, I haven't got to that point yet, fortunately. What so, were you doing in Proto 87? Did you, did you use uh, anything special in P87? Cork. I just ties cork. on cork. So the Midwest Midwest Cork product is yeah. it the yes yeah yeah and um, I'm just I had wanted to I was doing that in my yard area because I was doing it, it was a flat yard and uh, um, the uh, the main line tra- the main and the siding the two main line tracks were on cork and then the I actually had a layer of um, uh, I had a layer of um, a half inch, a half inch plywood subroad bed, and then on top of that, I had half inch um, sheetrock, on which I put the um, uh, the road bed, the actual cork road bed, one on top of the sheetrock, and so on the yard tracks were laid right on the sheetrock. The ties were put right down on the sheetrock. And how did that work out for you? Was, that sounds interesting. It's neat because if you want to put trenches on either side of the right of way, or you want to put in a pothole or something, you just dig it out of the sheetrock. It's you know, and then it's, you're not going to go that deep. Um, so you're able to get this, this in a yard anyway, you can get the small contours below grade level really easy because you're just able to dig it right out. It, it was working quite well, actually. I um, was using, um, I had drawn my track plan out using uh, Third Planet. And so I was printing the track plan out uh, one-to-one Laying that out, I would lay the uh, the track plan, the, the eight and a half inch, eight and a half by eleven sheets of paper, onto the the sheetrock, tape them down like they're supposed to go, and then what I would do is I would take a knife, and um, cut along the center lines of the tracks, take out the paper, and then um, uh, take a pen along the the, the knife cut, mm-hmm. so that so that you could see where the center line of the track was. And so I was doing that with all the, wherever the tracks and everything came together. So I would cut out the middle. I would just run the knife deep enough so that the pen would have a groove. And so that it was working quite well, actually. Very easy. And you mentioned earlier tonight on the chat that you had just received a batch of uh, frog castings for the turnouts. Yes. Uh, I bought bought the parts from, uh, I guess it's right away. Right away, I, it's right away parts. I bought, I, I, I've been doing so many things, I don't know where my head's at, but I just got, I have the, the parts, just the, just the frog and the points and the guardrails for two number eight switches. Uh, I really didn't take a look at them because I was, I was just getting off the train. I got home. Uh, I looked at it and said, oh, cool, and I went to bed. <laughs> <laughs> because I had been up since six, I, I hadn't slept very well in the hotel in in, uh, in Albany. I had you know woken up at six thirty in the af- afternoon yesterday, got on the train at three fifteen in the morning, and this was one thirty in the afternoon, and I was just beat. And I was like, oh wow, these are cool. I'm going to bed. Well, that's that's understandable, but we do expect an update on the discussion list tomorrow about how the frogs went together and the, you assembled your first turnout or something. Oh, I don't have any ties. I have no ties. I have no rail. All <laughs> oh, I have come on. That's just a, that's a mere inconvenience. 
Yeah, <laughs> yeah, small thing. I have all sorts of code 83, and I'm doing this in code 125. But the part, I mean, all those parts, they're, you know, they're one part, you know, one piece. I don't have to do the one thing about Proto 48 is not, uh, you know, it's not like uh, HO where you're actually, I've hand laid turnouts making all the parts myself. And then yeah, like I the went, fast track sort of style where you cut everything and file the points and file the frog rails and everything. Well, I, I was doing that afterwards. I was actually assembling them in place on my railroad curve turnouts and all that of the curve, curve turnouts, curve crossovers. I was doing all that in place on my railroad. And then I found fast tracks and I'm like, this is easy. I can, <laughs> I can do this in my sleep. You know, the, these things are great. And I was doing that. And then I found Andy Reichert's proto 87 stores. And I'm like, Oh God, <laughs> I, I have to stop looking at the internet. I keep finding new ways to do things. Well, that's the joy and the pain of it. You, you, as soon as you discover and, and uh, work out a way that works for you, you find that somebody else has been doing it easier for years and yeah. it's a bit stressing. But, um, I, that's the tremendous. thing. Is I, don't, I don't think, uh, sorry about that. Uh, I don't think, at least in, unless you go into garden railways, I don't think that you can go much better than Proto 48. I think Proto 48 has enough smallness that it'll fit in my basement. And yet enough heft that you actually do the detailing that I want to do and have it be visible. So I think yeah. it's like the best of all worlds. I think it's, it is the ultimate, uh, uh, I won't say compromise because that's got a negative word to it. It's the, it's the best of all worlds uh, for size, weight, uh, aesthetic, uh, visual impact. Um, it, just, it just looks great to me. I agree. I, you know, where else are you going to go? I mean, the sad thing is, it was, I was just uh, in Charles Rowe, and they have USA Trains is a, is a, what is a number one gauge locomotive. I can buy a number one gauge SD80, which is a huge locomotive for less money than this O-scale plastic <laughs> GP9. It's like, ah, uh, but I have no space. That's the one good thing. So I'm not going to be building a railroad in my backyard. End of the story, always where I'm going. And fortunately, I have so much HO stuff um, that I have really not had to spend any extra money yet. Yet it's going to be. It's going. Yeah, yeah. Well, it's going. It sounds like it's going to be a fun journey. So uh, yeah. I'll uh, I'll follow along with what you're doing on the uh, Proto 48 Yahoo group. And if you get a chance to give us an update every once in a while, uh, call in or on the chat or something. It'd be absolutely fabulous to hear from you again. If you want to tell us some more stories about life on the CSX, again, we'd love to hear from you. No problem. Certainly. Yeah, don't be a stranger. We, uh, we record every other Saturday, and you're more than welcome to call in and, and give periodic updates, Jim. Mainly, I haven't come on before because it's just scheduling. You know, it's like, the day, oh, they're, they're recording this day, and then I get sent on a train somewhere. So it's, if I'm... Well, I'm I'm glad it worked out that you were available to uh, to call in tonight because it's been fascinating to to hear uh, the real life stories and how they they tie into what you're doing in the model. So, Jim, it's been a pleasure talking to you this evening. And uh, yeah, like Chris says, I mean, please do when when you can uh, when when the times overlap when you are available for a model rail radio, please do call back in and and give updates with regards to your uh, Proto 48. 
um, musings and uh, adventures. I will do that. That sounds like a plan. Terrific. Absolutely terrific. Thanks a lot, Jim. And thanks for inviting me on. Chris, well, that's that's a vista into a, a whole other part of the hobby and also some real-world uh, experience. It was wonderful having Jim on uh, to, to give us an update. While he was talking, actually, I looked up the variety of Proto 48 resources that appear to be online, and I do see what he means in terms of just the level of detail. I think this almost vends into what you were saying earlier, in fact, probably just about the same time that uh, Jim came on with regards to the O-Gage magazine. What's the... Is there much distinction between Proto 48 and, and O-Gage? Is it just a, a refined version of O? Um, philosophically, now here I'm going to tread on somebody's toes because it's, <laughs> this, is, this again, this is, this is uh, Trevor Marshall and his, oh, have you seen this uh, lately? And uh, he's been talking about Proto 48. We have our, uh, you know, three or four times weekly conversations about the hobby. And uh, he says his opinion is that there is a philosophical difference as well as a purely aesthetic difference between Proto 48 and standard or traditional O scale. And it is the, uh, the striving for a more realistic scene all the way around. The, the quality of the, the structures, the quality of the rolling stock, the accuracy of the scenery uh, relating to the trains, that is the profile of the roadbed and the placement of the ties and all of the details that are there. It's not merely correcting the gauge to four foot eight and a half from, from five foot, and it's not merely uh, making the flanges on the wheels finer than, than they are in the, the standard o, o scale. And uh, I have to agree with them, and you know, you listen to what... Uh, uh, I have to listen to what Jim's saying about how he's correcting a simple thing like taking a perfectly good Atlas O-scale car and carving off the cast detail to put in uh, a, a specific uh, size of wire that is going to accurately represent the diameter of a real grab iron on the car so that you get that fineness of uh, appearance where you're you take the shrink ray and you take the full-size car and you reduce it down to the model size and you don't have outsized details, big nut-bolt washer castings, big thick um, plastic, um, plastic rails and, and um, uh, stirrup steps and, and uh, grab irons and see-through boardwalks, uh, the new etched brass or stainless steel uh, uh, roof walks on the cars and the ladders, everything done to the most accurate uh, representation that you can manage. And, uh, and then putting that together in a, in a scene that is representative of the real thing. There's no plasticville structures, there's no uh, Fireman Fred or the, the character that used to hop out of the the crossing shanty with a lantern every time the trains came by.
Chris, I think unfortunately it's getting to be this time and unfortunately I'm, I'm probably going to have to sign off at this stage, but I think we've gotten a, a lot of phenomenal information uh, this evening and no doubt when we record again in, in two weeks' time uh, there'll be more stuff coming through. I should point out that I'm actually hoping to get a special guest, a, um, I don't know what, what one would call it, not, um, not a model rail luminary, but a luminary um, in another field who also dabbles in model trains. Uh, I've been exchanging some emails with him and he's uh, really fascinated with model rail radio and would like to participate. So he's a kind of contemporary of mine, a uh, completely different field and probably something that, uh, I don't know, maybe the younger listeners or uh, certainly, um, I guess, kind of Matt Goodman's kids' age uh, folks would probably know more about, but uh, my hope is that he will call in in, in two weeks' time uh, and completely uh, blow apart the model rail radio discussion. Another interesting thing is, in two weeks' time, my wife uh, is holding a wedding shower for her sister, and I will be recording in a distant bedroom <laughs> model rail radio <laughs> while that thing is going on. So, um, yes, I may be in very strange quarters recording from new parts, uh, but, yes, it will no doubt be an eventful, action-packed show, um, possibly with a, a lot of additional craziness. But then again, this is what you come to expect, recording something like Model Rail Radio. Fantastic, as usual. Um, <laughs> I, I wasn't expecting to, to have such a, a detailed conversation with... Uh, with a, a random caller. So Jim, thanks very much for calling in. It was excellent to, uh, to get a chance to ask some of these questions that have been sort of burning in the back of my mind about the, the real life on the real railroad. So, uh, again, uh, I, I've run out of things to say tonight, Tom. Uh, <laughs> it's, it's been actually a bit overwhelming. Um, enjoyed myself thoroughly as usual. Certainly. Certainly. Well, the pleasure has been all mine as well, Chris. So thank you very much for the chance to chat this evening. Thanks to, uh, to Ben in New England as well for calling in. I think he had to go to a job interview, uh, but he was, uh, yeah, so he was on a bit of the call at the start and listening in for some of the remainder of the call. And thanks also to Jim, obviously, for, for calling in and giving us uh, a fascinating uh, insight, both as uh, a life on the rails and also modelling the rails to an extreme level of detail. Well, Chris, it's going to be an interesting show in two weeks' time, so probably should uh, brush up our, uh, what we've been doing and uh, prepare ourselves for what occurs in two weeks' time. Wonderful chatting with you as always, Chris. Good night. Take care, Tom.